Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This week, my guest is Hugh Ryan. Hugh, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you, Margaret? I'm doing okay. I'm, like, grouchy, but that's no one's fault. It's raining. Also, I'm 40-something, so I'm grouchy at all times. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Um, That's an important way to be... Okay. Um... Hugh Ryan, for anyone listening, is an author and a historian. And on my very short list of historians about queer stuff, I hit up all the time. Like before I started this show, like the first episode of this show, I basically reached out to Hugh and was like, please explain the history of homosexuality and heterosexuality in the Western world. It's like the most wonderful thing anyone could ever ask me, because usually when (laughs) I talk at length about that at people, they beg me to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, Sophie is our producer. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Hi, Magpie. I'm swell. Yay. I'm glad you're swell. But also grumpy. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is the the mortal wound of modern civilized life is being both swell and always under attack by capitalism and bad things. Ian is our audio engineer. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Unwoman wrote our theme song. Okay, so I figured we've got one of the best historians about LGBT history and a New York City expert on. So why not talk about 16th century Irish politics and piracy. Yes! <laughs> uh, we don't, I, I think everyone knows us, we don't tell the guests what we're going to talk about. Um, mostly because we don't want them to like secretly go and research it ahead of time, you know? Don't worry, I wouldn't have, but I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, cool. Because I was going to say, when I first met you, you had recently lived on a boat, but I think that's not true. No, I, my, my boyfriend at the time lived Mm -hmm. on a boat and I spent a lot of time on it. It was a boat that floated, but never moved because it was not capable of moving, but it was still, (laughs) I think, does that make it a raft? Like, when do you go from being a raft to a boat? I'm not sure. I mean, it was boat shaped and like, 
Do rafts have bilge pumps that constantly break and need to get fixed? That actually just brought back like real traumatic memories. When the bilge pump would break, it would play Fur Elise. So that was the sound that meant I was drowning. And now <laughs> I can't hear it without thinking, ah, get out of bed, get out of bed. See, I think that that counts as boat life. Um, maybe that's what makes it a boat instead of a ship, right? Because if you get on like a ship that goes in the water, people get really mad if you call it a boat. Really? I think. Mm. I don't know. That's like a pedant thing I've heard. Mm. Well, that's only really tangentially related. There's some boats or ships in today's episode because pirates. They were pirates without ships. This would be a really sad episode. So I know. I'd be. I'd be like. They'd have a GoFundMe to get themselves a ship. So that GoFundMe's they could are like everyone. piracy. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about Grania Nawalia or as her name is anglicized, Grace O'Malley. Oh, the Irish pirate queen. The Irish pirate queen. That's right. That is the next sentence that I was going to read. That's also my nickname, but I'm glad she oh. had it first. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. There's a lot of hues in today's story, actually. Mostly near the end. They all come in at once. It's very strange. I never meet other hues because we have to battle to the death like Highlanders. So it's good to hear about them. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. You've actually outlived all of these ones so far, uh, to my knowledge, unless they're Highlanders, in which case they're still around. The English state papers, which are the notes that people write down when you have a government, you're just like, here's the stuff that happened today in government. That's what a state paper is, as best I can tell. The English state papers, which is actually where we get most of our knowledge about her. Ireland kind of wasn't sure what to write about her. Refer to her as the most notorious woman on all the Western coasts, a notable traitress, and has been the nurse of all rebellions in the province for 40 years. Which is pretty fucking cool. I'd be pretty yeah, proud. Get that on a tombstone. Damn. I know. Traitress. I think traitress would fit on your knuckles. I'm not entirely certain how to spell. No, it's nine letters. I'm sorry, everyone. I know they got your hopes up about sick knuckle tattoos. She is a messy hero. She might not have been a hero. She might have sucked. No one knows. <laughs> we know a lot about her life, and we know a lot about the legends that people have built up around her, but we don't actually know her motives, and we don't know which side she was working on for most of the time. Uh, <laughs> Double agent, triple agent, who knows? Basically, she was a sailor, a merchant, a fighter, a gambler, a crime boss, a pirate, a rebel, a devoted mother and grandmother, and a almost certainly a spy or probably a spy but if she was a spy was she a double agent was she a i, I don't know mm. she was not she sounds like a lot of fun let's just say that yeah yeah exactly exactly so she's a pirate uh but she's a hundred years before the quote golden age of piracy so she's not what many western listeners will first think of when they imagine the word pirate she's she's irish as shit she's medieval irish she's 16th century irish which Needs some explanation. And this is how I work the entire history of Ireland into a podcast. I'm ready to hear it. Boy, howdy, let's do it. <laughs> All right. So I'm starting at the beginning. There's a country called Ireland. You might have heard of it. Mm -hmm. It's famous for exactly two things. One, being colonized, the first country colonized by the British and suffering brutally at their hands time and time again. And, of course, it's famous for how later these socialist revolutionaries called themselves the Irish Republican Army, but right-wing Irish Americans are really dense and are like, yeah, Republicans like us. That's, oh, that's painful. 
you know, if you would listen, if you ever listen to IRA songs on YouTube, the comments are just all of these like blue line skull avatars being like, hell yeah, brother. Uh, yeah, I grew up singing a lot of the the black and, you know, come out your black and tans, come out and fight mm-hmm. us like a man. Uh, yeah. And then when you hear that in a bar, the people who respond make me go, oh. <laughs> Margaret, I That's, think you're mm-hmm. thoroughly forgetting the third thing that Ireland is known for. I can't think of anything else. Potato. Oh. That's true. They famously did not have a good time with potatoes. Yeah, potato. Yeah, but we can fold that under the British colonization, though. I, yeah, that, I, that could go yeah. under there, for sure. Yeah. 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 Honestly, the fact that the people who respond when you sing Come Out, You Black and Tans are not necessarily the people you want to be friends with is the main tension I had about whether or not I was going to record this episode. Because I think it is really useful for people to understand the history of British colonization and to understand that Ireland was absolutely fucked by the British. But I I want to avoid playing into this like weird, like, therefore white America thing that makes no fucking sense. You know, it's interesting because it's it's a real generational thing, I think, too. My two of my four grandparents came over from Ireland after, um, shall we say, involvement Mm-hmm. with the resistance <laughs> against the British, which uh, they don't speak about a lot. My grandfather had a bullet in his shoulder that he never really talked about, which wow. actually was probably from the falling apart of the IRA after, you know, the, the devil the era split uh, okay. after the 1920s. Um, yeah. And so okay. my grandmother, uh, who he, he married, uh, the two of them both emigrated, and she had held a gun for the first time against the Black and Tens when she was nine, when they came to burn down her village. She oh, ended up shit. being a Republican, you know, many decades later. And yeah. then my parents became... In the American sense, not the... In the American sense, yeah. And then my it, parents yeah. became fierce uh, Democrats, like very Democratic Unionists. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I am, you know, a, a sort of queer anarchist. <laughs> so yeah. we see the generations <laughs> playing out in unexpected ways. Yeah. No, that, that tracks... So we're going to talk about the history of Ireland and we're going to be talking about 16th century Ireland, which is not like England light, like it sort of gets presented. Like it has an entirely different system, different concepts. It's very different socially. And so I want to give us some context because the fact that everyone did everything very differently than England caused most of the tension that caused why we're going to be talking about Grania today. Ireland is an island. I don't know if you knew that. People have lived there for a fuck-off long time, like maybe during the Ice Age, but people aren't super sure about that. But definitely some folks showed up at around 8,000 BC. They hung out hunting and gathering for about 4,000 years. And then they started to do a little bit of agriculture and herding here and there. They made pottery. They built off really fuck-off cool tombs and like all this shit that's like lined up to the stars and all that, that great stuff. The most extensive archaeological site of all of this era is in County Mayo, which is in the northwest of Ireland, which is where most of what we're going to talk about is today. That's the only relation it has to that, but I just still think it's neat. And these these first people, or the second people possibly, they're not the Celts, who are now seen as the major ethnic group of Ireland, or rather the Gaels, the subsection of the Celts. The Celts show up later. And this is really interesting to me, because Irish mythology describes that there were six groups of people who settled Ireland, and the first three were wiped out, and some of their descendants became like the gods and shit. I'm not as versed in Irish folklore as I would like to be. But I find it really interesting that these myths, which probably would have just been called history for a very long time, 
were like, yeah, a bunch of different groups of people were here and then they all fucked off or died or whatever. And then more recent history is like, yeah, there were a bunch of different groups of people here and then they all fucked off or died or whatever. Ireland has a real spiral to that history. <laughs> it keeps yeah, it really does. Yeah. yeah. If you ever want to get lost in a sea of very strong and conflicting opinions, read all of the different theoretical anthropological origins of the settlement of Ireland. But 6th century BC, the Celts show up really slowly. And this is a thing that I think is really cool about Ireland. Most of the time when people showed up, they're not like, yeah, Ireland is ours now. But instead, you get something called Gaelicization, where cultures merge rather than replace one another. And there's a really strong exception to this rule that comes later uh, called the British. But prior to that, you get Gaelicization. And the creation of the Gaels itself was Gaelicization. It was probably a merging of Celtic and indigenous Irish culture. And this whole synchronization thing is not unique to Ireland, but since it's where a lot of my family's from, I've like paid more attention to it than some other places. This is how you get classical Ireland. The Gaels are there. There are probably Druids. You've got a bunch of kings and bards and shit. Like a lot of kings. This is not a unified country. Uh, there's tons of clans famously not getting along great all of the time. Basically, it's a place of different warring clans or kingdoms for a very long time. So Rome shows up and is like, Britain is ours now. And they didn't bother with Ireland, which they called Hibernia, which means winterland, basically. Historians like to argue about this, like why they didn't go fuck with Ireland. Historians like to argue, period, which is actually kind of cool. Like, what are you talking doesn't... about? <laughs> we don't argue. I'm a pop Prove historian. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, this is the thing I really like, because at first I'm like, oh God, all of these sources are saying really different things. But then you realize, like, that's the point, right? Like, people listen to history or science and think, oh, this is the answer science has told me. Whereas, like, actual scientists and historians are like, no, 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 this is our best guess based on the evidence that we currently have. Which makes, like, even, like, the whole, like, I don't know, like, people revisioning history and all of that shit, like, more interesting than it seems. Because it sounds like people are like, oh, you're just rewriting history. It's like, no, we're constantly readdressing this like series of facts to try and figure out the best narrative to tie it all together. Yeah, um, and there's always new facts. I mean, even just the time it takes to research history, mm -hmm. new facts appear in the research that you did at the start of a project is possibly no longer valid at the end. Yeah, no, I did that happen to you during one of writing one of your books? For anyone who hasn't doesn't know, Hugh Ryan has a couple of books of uh, New York queer history that rule. That happened in certain ways several times for me. Uh, in particular, like when I was working on this book about the women's house of detention, the prison that used to be in Greenwich Village, mm -hmm. I would find that there were whole sources which were not accessible, did not seem to exist. And then like a year and a half later, I would just type a phrase into Google and it was like an entire archive had <laughs> like emerged from the yeah. ocean. Yeah. Which is, I really like that. I really like that we're like, it's so weird that we're getting better at history. Like, we're further away from all the stuff, you know? Yeah. But, like, the Victorians were so bad at it that... I think the thing we're getting better at, maybe, at mm -hmm. least a little bit, is, like, sharing it. I think archives always have this real rough problem, right? Mm -hmm. They're ca tasked with two diametrically opposite chores. We yeah. must preserve these things. Yeah. And the most dangerous thing that we can do to them is touching them. Right. But we also have to make them available to people on the outside who need to touch them. And I think that for a long time, 
archives swung more towards the preserve and protect and less towards the share and popularize. And I think we're moving in that direction. And I think part of it is about digitization and the internet making it so much easier to do those things that it's really hard to not at least do partially job of it. And now you don't have to have as many people touching this stuff. So, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so, so Rome shows up. They never conquer Ireland, and whether or not they tried is, again, a matter of some historical debate. It's possible that there was like a Gaelic chief or king who was like, hell yeah, I'll totally sell my people out for power. But mostly, they were like, why would we bother with that backwater slum where everyone is filthy and starving and it's fucking cold? We literally named it Winterland. And have you met, the, this is again the Roman voice, not my voice, and have you met those filthy Irish people? They're so fighty, they, how could you rule them? They can't even rule themselves. Or the Roman Empire was too big already and they were busy, too busy conquering Scotland and there was nothing so magical and special about the Irish like many people want there to be. Whatever reason, Rome doesn't conquer Ireland. Irish warriors, though, uh, they fuck up the Romans in Britain all the time. <laughs> Probably not as some, like, war for liberation. Probably more just like, hell yeah, let's go, like, raid and steal some shit. <laughs> but I think it's a little messier than that. Because we get what's called, have you ever heard of the Great Conspiracy or the Barbarian Conspiracy of 367? No. Okay, so I'm really excited about this. This is some like George R. Martin shit. Okay. Everyone around is like, oh my God, fuck these Romans. Let's go fuck them up. And if this was just a raid, why would there be this enormous international collaboration? It was Mm. huge. You have the Picts from Scotland. You have the Scotty from Ireland. I know, I know. You have the Atticati, who I think were from around there, but I'm not entirely certain. I think they're mostly, most of the history you can immediately find about them is literally they threw down in this fight. Um, So if you want to be remembered as a small group, you should fight an empire. It's not a good way to last a long time, but it's a good way to get remembered. You've got the Saxons from Germania, which is roughly where you think it is. And you've also got a Roman garrison that mutinied and helped it all happen which was probably local Brits and other groups in the area, not soldiers from Rome. And where was that mutinous garrison? But Hadrian's Wall. Do you, do you know Hadrian's Wall? That's the, the like end of the whole property of Rome, right? Like they built yeah. that wall to be like, yeah. Yeah, they're like, we got to keep the wildlings out. Yeah. And um, it's a 12 foot high, 8 to 10 feet deep, 73 mile long stone wall that goes from shore to shore across the middle of fucking... I don't want to say England, people will get mad. The bigger island. Mm. Great Britain? Or is that the name of the kingdom? Yeah, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) So, and it was to keep the the Scottish, to keep the Picts out. And it, I don't know. Imagine building a physical wall as a symbol of separating the good God-fearing civilized people from the impoverished people just across it. This is This is the first white picket fence in history. Oh my God, it is, because it's all white plastered too. It took 15,000 people six years to build this wall. And it took just one mutinous garrison to let the Picts over in the aforementioned Great Conspiracy. Meanwhile, everyone else, like the Irish, they land in the south and they're like, hell yeah, let's fucking do this. Raid, pillage, burn, possibly liberate. A little messy. But the Romans, they had this, this group of people who existed to make sure that they would know if the Picts were coming. They were called the, the Arcani or the Ariani, depending on which literal physical carved into stone source you look at. And they are supposed to report on conspiracies. It's like the Roman FBI of the area, right? <laughs> they were in on it. 
they were like, fuck it. We're part of this too. And people were like, maybe they were bribed. Maybe they were just like, no, we don't, we don't like the Romans either. So after all of this, when the rebellion gets crushed, Rome is like, we're disbanding you, a secret society called the Arcani, which means secret, or it's a misreading of Ariani, which means people who have sheep. <laughs> um, either Those way. are two great possibilities. Yeah. Both totally real. They were a secret, secret society, sheep. and most of them probably had sheep. Yeah. <laughs> They all go away. Or do they? Is there still a Roman secret society of sheep herders in the middle of England? No, there probably isn't. And the thing about this, like, huge conspiracy is that this wasn't while Rome was new in England. Rome had been ruling England since 43 AD. So this is like 320 years later. That's longer than the U.S. has existed. So when people tend to think that, like, oh, I don't know, empires and colonizing countries are forever. History says that's not always the case. The Great Conspiracy retook huge chunks of Britain back from Roman rule. They probably showed up and murdered and raped and burned everything down because they were raiders. But also, it's a little bit mixed because like history is like, oh, this terrible thing happened, right? But everyone who lived there was in on it. Like, huge chunks of all the British garrisons were just defecting and abandoning their posts and joining the rebellion. So it's like, I'm a little bit confused by this idea that it was just a raid. I want to read more about this, is what I'm trying to say. But it's fucking interesting. Rome rallied. They got, after about a year, they got a bunch of people's spears and swords, and they retook Britain. And I don't know. I want to find a book from, like, the Scotty or Picked point of view about all of this stuff, but I'm, I'm not aware of it yet. Yeah, I don't know of any. So then, eventually, Rome sort of falls apart. Rome, Roman control in Britain ends like less than eh, about a generation or two later. It starts with like Britain de-urbanizing. People start growing food inside the cities. This is like seen as archaeological evidence or anthropological evidence of the de-urbanization of Britain. And it kept being beset by barbarian hordes or whatever. And so is Rome itself. And by 409, Britain is free from Roman rule. And or it got plunged into the Dark Ages, depending on who you ask. This isn't a story about Britain. I just think it's cool that the Irish kept fucking up Rome. And Rome never got to fuck up the Irish. <laughs> and this idea, the like, I think it's important to get a kind of groundwork understanding of medieval Ireland and wasn't conquered by Rome and was seen as backwards barbarians is a big part of that. This idea that Ireland is the here, there be monsters, like sketchy part of the map is a huge part of everything that happens to Ireland, specifically in terms of how Britain deals with it. It's not entirely true that Rome didn't conquer Ireland because they did it in their Catholic way a little bit later. St. Patrick shows up. And there are already a few Christians in Ireland, but not a lot. And soon Ireland goes Catholic, which is really funny to me because in so many ways, they're like so Catholic and they do all this work of like maintaining the Latin language during the early Middle Ages when like everywhere else it was like falling apart or whatever. And they like sent missionaries out all over Europe. But they also like just didn't give up their pagan beliefs. Um, their mythology is just running through everything. Their religious and marriage rights and their like secession rights and what it means to be king that we're going to get to in a little bit is just not Catholic. My family was super Catholic. 
Super yeah. Catholic. My grandmother, my mm-hmm. grandparents, you know, mm-hmm. church multiple times a week when I was little. Uh, and yet still, we were constantly like, you're traveling, pray to St. Christopher. You're, you know, yeah. something's lost, pray to St. Anthony. It's like a whole um, pagan theology pagan, of worship yeah. tacked onto different saints. Yep, exactly. And there's even at this point, we're going to get into this a little bit more. There's um, this Catholic country has divorce uh, that women can initiate. It has concubines. It has um, like trial marriages it has uh in order to become king you literally like fuck the land like you like brand law was symbolically cool. <laughs> um yeah no it's it's interesting as hell yeah brand law being the the pre is the celtic legal system that uh english law kind of tried to supplant and and actually the story we're going to talk about today is when brand law and uh english law get into a fight with lots of people fighting on both sides so Ireland. The Vikings show up in the 800s. They start raiding. They form the city of Dublin. They get the slave trade up and going. The Vikings actually kind of suck. Dublin was a major slave capital in the region. People get stolen from all around the Isles. In 1902, sorry, not 1902, 902, (laughs) thousand years earlier than what I usually talk about on this show. Some cool people got together and fucked them up, retook Dublin. They lost again in 917. Then again in 980, the Irish fucked up the Vikings again in the Battle of Terra, and then the Vikings got it back again. And then in 1014, you've got Ireland's High King going to war and fucking them up. And High King is sort of a, it's not like a joke, but it's not, it's not some like, oh yeah, that guy's in charge. Everyone totally listens to that guy. But instead, so in order to be king at this point in Ireland, you have to you have to fuck a sovereignty goddess or marry a sovereignty goddess, which is the representation of the land. There's no kill option; it's just fucking marry. Yeah, well, we'll get actually. It's funny because there's going to be a fuck marry kill <laughs> reference later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you've got to like you've got to like symbolically marry the land that you're going to rule because basically it's still sort of this goddess Earth in a lot of ways that you are just caring for. And it gets embodied in a lot of different ways, like fucking people or in one case in this Catholic country in order to be named king, you fuck a horse and then you kill the horse and then you cook the horse into a broth and then you bathe in the broth made out of the dead horse that you fucked and killed. And then everyone drinks the broth of the horse that you bathed in the blood of the hole in the bottom of the sea in the bucket, which is a very Catholic thing. It is not Catholic. It's just pagan. (laughs) I think we should move back to that system. I, you know, if any of our presidential candidates were willing to fuck a horse, maybe I'll vote for them. Actually, that's a lie. All of them would do it. They are. I was going to say. I was going to say. I feel like there's several horse fuckers that have already been president. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you know who else wants you to have sex with and become king? I feel like some of the ads probably want you to feel like you're king. Probably. Uh, ads. Here's some ads for stuff. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
could just be a me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. And we're back. So... The High King of Ireland, Brian Boru at this point. It's like you call yourself the High King of Ireland and it's like an actual title. There's like only one of them at a given point, but you don't actually, no one listens to you. You're like, I'm the High King. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Prove it. But in this particular case, he was able to use that in order to get enough people together that on April 23rd, 1014, he got his armies together and he attacked the Vikings. And there's a bunch of different ways that people look at all of this, of course, You can basically look at it being like the Irish got together and kicked out the Vikings, which is like the most patriotic and easy way to look at it. But then there's also like one Irish guy went to war against another Irish guy who had more Vikings on his side than the other guy. (laughs) And actually, it's go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I I was in Ireland like 25 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, visiting this monastery at Clonmacnoise. Okay. And it's beautiful and, and ruined and it's right on the water and you sort of walk all around and like this is gorgeous what happened and they give you a tour and in the tour they're like, you know, the the Irish monks who did so much to preserve uh, Latin, like you said, and mm-hmm. the, the medieval texts and, uh, you know, and this was a, a site of learning and intelligence, which was sacked by the Vikings some, you know, half dozen times. Yeah. And then the tour guide like sort of pauses for a moment and says... And it was also sacked by the Irish like eight or ten other times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really easy to be like, and then all the Irish just wanted to get along with each other. Like, no, they're just people. No. That's the problem. We, we, people are just people. Um, but in this particular case, they want the Vikings gone. And so they get together a whole ton of people in the Battle of Clontarf. And the Vikings had male armor and the Irish were like poor as fuck and were like running around with spears and shit. But they fought. And Brian, more than 70 years old, this high king, uh, he's there with the warriors. He died when the enemy stormed his camp and killed him while he was praying. Um, His son died in the fighting and so did his nephew and so did his 15-year-old grandkid. So three generations you can at least say that these particular kings weren't a sit-at-the-back type and they they won. 
even though their leader, their leader's kid, their leader's grandkid all died in the fighting, the grandkid died drowning while chasing after them in boats or something. They Is this the war where all the kids fought? Like the Red Branch? Is that this? Oh, I don't know. I have know. like repressed memories of Irish folklore and mm-hmm. history that were drilled into me between the ages of like zero and 16. Yeah. And like little bits of every story sound familiar, but it's all just a big mush. There was a war approximately every 15 years at this point, as far as I can tell. <laughs> like later when we get to the English, the so the Irish rebellions against the English, most of the time you hear about like rebellions like once a generation or whatever. 16th century Ireland was like every fucking five to 10 years. Like one rebellion is down and another one crops up. So I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not aware of this being that story. But um, they won. This is what uh, theoretically broke the power of the Vikings in Ireland more or less for good. Although they did still manage to have some power in Dublin and still do some slave trading. And I want to know more about it. And one reason I want to know more about it is that my family name, actually my Irish family name, comes from the brother of the High King. So I'm like, I, I'm not trying to be, I don't know. I just think it's cool. The Irish killjoys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's what everyone, because I don't talk about my like family name very much publicly, you know? And uh, yeah. So that's the Anglicization. <laughs> that's what I'll claim. The killjoy like is. <laughs> so Ireland had a high king after that, and his power was constantly challenged. He wasn't really much of a high king at all. Um, even though he'd like married and fucked the whole country or whatever, you know. One guy, he's a regular king, not a high king. His name is Diarmit MacMurkta. And he gets exiled to what's now France. And he's like, fuck it. I'm going to get some Normans together and invade Ireland. Normans being a newish group of French folks that were a mix, mix of French and Norse because of a Viking dude named Rollo who's in the TV show. Vikings had set up shop in Normandy. So the Normans invade in 1167. They conquer the east coast of Ireland. This somehow confusingly meant the English king gets to claim Ireland. The fucking monarchy is the most nonsensical system that anyone has ever come up with. The Irish, they're not really excited about this. I don't know if you knew that. They don't really love being one country. That's kind of part of their thing at this point. But they really don't love being someone else's country. So they throw down over the course of hundreds of years. And by 1261, you've got Irish armies fucking up all the Norman armies. And slowly they take the island back from the British. And then you get the Black Death. And you ever like do any like medieval reading and then the Black Death just like comes in and shuffles all the pieces around and then just... Sometimes good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen. Obviously, it's bad for the people who were directly living through it. But it like, oh, I don't know, changed property property relationships and class structure in all of Europe when a third of the people died or whatever. It's like that quote from Game of Thrones. Chaos is a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Black Death comes. And the thing is, the Normans and the British, they live in like, they live near each other. And the Irish, they're like walking around like not near each other. So the English and the Normans die and the Irish don't. I mean, the Irish die too, but not in the same kind of numbers. So you're telling me social distancing works. Yes. Social distancing is what gave Ireland back to all of you weird right wing Americans who are really into Irish pride. Social distancing is how Ireland got itself back from England. Social distancing and horse fucking. You heard it here. That's right. That's right. So 
they start getting to speak Irish again. And so the, the Normans who didn't live near Dublin in general at this point are Gaelicizing, and they become kind of Irish instead of forcing the Irish to become Norman. Although you've got this class divide that's divide, building between the Hiberio-Norman and the Gaels. And all that England controlled was a little area around Dublin called the Pale, which is where the phrase beyond the Pale comes from. If something is beyond the Pale, it means it is beyond imagining, like that terrible, scary, barbarian place of Ireland. A 16th century priest named Francisco Cercata toured Ireland and had this to say about it, which is probably an exaggeration, but it's not quite as much of one as you'd think. He said, Irish people are very religious, but do not regard stealing as sinful, nor is it punished as a crime. They hold that we, foreigners, are uncivilized because we keep the gifts of fortune to ourselves, while they live naturally, believing all things should be held in common. This accounts for the number of thieves. You are in peril of being robbed or killed if you travel the country without a strong bodyguard. I have heard that in places further north, people are even more uncivilized, going about nude, living in caves, and eating raw meat. And so, largely, this just sounds like people like talking trash, but it, I mean, one, nothing in there is actually inherently bad, you know? Maybe cook your meat. Just, just throw <laughs> that out there. But, okay, as for holding everything in common, they did and they didn't. By a modern, they, they weren't like socialist or communist or something about it, right? But by English standards, they absolutely were. Because the king of the clan was in charge, but he didn't own the land. He was temporarily married to it. He was temporarily in charge. So the clan owns the land and he is the steward of it. Like in a lot of medieval cultures, there's like this kind of constant tension between hierarchy and freedom that's happening in that culture. And the going about nude and living in caves part, I was like, eh, but then I keep finding all these references to like the English being like, I wish they'd build houses. <laughs> and at another point, a Spanish guy is, is um, fleeing from the English across Ireland, and he tells stories about being like, and then I went and hung out at the chapel with a bunch of naked ladies who are just sitting out, hanging out. Yeah, Ireland's kind of chilly. Like, I don't mind, like, regular public nudity, but I do hope they had access to clothes, you know, because there are yeah. some months where I don't think you want to be naked in your cave. No, no. And and uh, to be clear, I'm not claiming that all medieval Irish people lived in caves and were naked, but but yeah, no. And, and actually, there was, like, sweat lodges and stuff. I think that's where he was hanging out with the naked people. That part didn't end up in the script, and now I'm regretting that. So, that's the context. To bring us to today's story. <laughs> Actually, I'm lying. There's more context. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's like only 40 minutes. Margaret. I could keep listening for hours. This is great. I think you should read more history books to me. I don't want the edited version of the podcast. I want to hear the whole like six hour your take yeah. on it. <laughs> cool. Well, this one almost ended up at, at some point. I was like, I actually. Yeah, I came close to this one being a very long episode. 16th century Ireland, you've got about 60 different clans. They're led by kings. They get called chieftains a lot, which is maybe in some ways accurate, but it's always like that same, like, when you're talking about, like, the uncivilized peoples, you're, the words we use kind of matter in terms of the, mm -hmm. the way that people make certain assumptions about those people. And these kings are not hereditary. And that was something that took me a while to wrap my head around, and I think is another part that's really important to understand the difference between medieval Ireland and medieval England. Instead of the eldest son becomes king, they practice a, a form of secession called tanistry, in which the king's heir is elected by all of the eligible men, 
which is basically all of the males descended from the current king's great-grandfather or some shit like that. It was slightly different in slightly different times, which, of course, led to a lot of war as people fought over secession and is part of why Ireland didn't unite. But it also is, like, interestingly, like, democratic's a strong word, right? But, like, it's different than this random fucking child is ordained by God, you know? Yeah, sort of like, keep it in the family, but we're still going to pick the one that's least, like, offensive. It's, it's a little, yeah. you know, a bit of both. Yeah, like, the one who's not, like, murder John. Oh, yeah, I was like, like, murder John. He just murders. Actually, you know what? There's multiple people in here. Who they might pick that guy. <laughs> who are, like, named, like, of the war, and, like, <laughs> the devil's hook is a major character in today's story. That's so based. <laughs> I know. And nowhere does it say how he got his that fucking name. Have you tried saying it in Gaelic? I'm sure it involves a lot of like sounds, if so. Uh, you know, I, I most of the names I do find the, the Gaelic uh, version of, but the Devil's Hook, uh, I didn't. So it's actually possible he was just called that by the English, but I'm not sure. So there's so much fighting happening in Ireland and against English attempts at rule and within from clan to clan that a ton of Scots are like, this sounds fun. We want to come. So the Scots show up all the time. There's, there's two groups. The, the main most important one is called the Galloglass, which means young fighting men. Some come over and stay in Ireland for good, but most come over for, quote, fighting season between May and October every year. <laughs> and they show up and they fight for basically like their clan will have like a sister clan in Ireland where every summer they're like, ah, time to go help the, Mac you know, the McDonald's or whatever and like fucking head over and throw down all summer and then head home for the winter. It's something for like the kids to do in the summer, you know, get them out of the right. house. Right. Exactly. Shed blood in someone else's country. I know because they're, you know, oh my God, this is brilliant. They're like all these hot headed young men. Let's send them over to Ireland. Get the fuck out. Yes, go invade yeah. that country. You go, you help our sister clan. Yeah, yeah. And they did get paid, but they did not see themselves as mercenaries. It was like a, a clan loyalty um, issue. And then there were Scottish mercenaries on top of that whose loyalty was bought, and they were called the Red Shanks. A lot of battles I read about, most of one side or the other might be almost entirely Scottish. Like a lot of these like huge battles will be like, It'll read the numbers and it'll be like, it was 900 Gallo Glass and, you know, 200 Cairn, which is Irish fighters, and 200 horsemen or something, you know? One of these many, many Irish clans was the O'Malley's, which is the Anglicization. They were the O'Malleys. And as far as I can tell, I'm not great at pronouncing, pronouncing all of this stuff. They had lands in what's now County Mayo, which at the time was called... Uh, not the whole county, but their area that they were in, their lands were called uh, Owl. And it was a kingdom that lasted from the 8th century to 1576 when it was surrendered to the English, when most of Ireland was surrendered to the English. It was a lowland coast. Its name translates roughly to Territory of the Owls, which rules. It is rough terrain with treacherous waters and treacherous cliffs. It is a rough place. And the first reference to the country of uh, the country of Owl is from the year 1812. The record is, a slaughter was made of the foreigners, the Vikings, by the men of Owl. Though then, whoa, it sounds like Owl. I wonder if that's where Owl, I 
Usually I look up etymology before I start this episode, but I didn't even think that through until I read it out loud. Uh, the next year, was the, only, the record was a battle between the men of Owl and the foreigners in which the men of Owl were slaughtered. So <laughs> that's the history of it. For the next several hundred years, it's just like, this guy killed that guy. These people pirated. And in 16th century, a poet wrote about it being like, this is a really good place to do guerrilla warfare against the English from, huh? Um, which wasn't, that's not a direct quote. The Owalias consider themselves true-blooded Irish. They had stayed like less normalized and anglicized. The West Coast in general had, um, and particularly further away from Galway, which was a little bit more anglicized, but we'll talk about that. Most of the clans, they didn't fuck with the sea in Ireland. Ireland's an island, but they didn't fuck yeah, with the they sea. They fucked the horse and the land, yes. but not the water. Yes. Owalias are built different. They're not afraid to fuck the ocean. In all the classic ways, fishing, trading, salvaging all the wrecks that wash up since the waters are so rough around there, that people are constantly dying, uh, extorting other people who want to use the sea, robbing people who don't give in to the extortion thing. You know, piracy. They're pirates. That's, that's her family business. They're a family whose power is built on organized crime, like all power in hierarchy and state authority. Other people don't like this as much. People from the sort of nearby Galway are like, you know what? No one from your family is allowed here. We don't like you. You're robbers. You are not invited to the park. I know. And you know who else wants to rob you? Capitalism. In many ways, what we're describing is the birth of capitalism. And, and now we're right in the center of capitalism. And that leads us to advertising. But we should bring back... Sometimes this podcast, instead of being sponsored by all this like negative stuff, we try to be sponsored by really good things. Um, the most common uh, is we're often sponsored by potatoes, the concept of potatoes, because they're good. We've been sponsored by sleeping dogs. We've been sponsored by a good comb. And I'm wondering if you've, you have any sponsors that you would like to, to be Gosh. sponsored by. Sophie will, whatever you come up with, Sophie's going to track them down and get us sponsored by them. I mean, I've got to say, since we're talking about Ireland, I think peat. Peat is an important part of Ireland. It's an important product. Great smell. It makes your fireplace mm -hmm. smell better. It makes your whiskey smell better. It makes your house smell like shit. But I love it. Great. We are sponsored by peat. Not the person. Well, also the person. But <laughs> if peat makes peat, I'm okay with it. Pete's Peat would be a great company. That's true. Uh, Pete and Pete is a show I liked as a kid. I watched a lot of Pete and Pete, so I was perhaps too old for it. <laughs> anyway, here's the ads. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. 
To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. We are back. And... We are talking about the Owalias. And they've got a king or a chieftain or whatever. His name is Black Oak. That's his nickname. Uh, his name is actually Dudar, which gets anglicized as Owen. Classic Dudar jump. To Owen pipeline. Yeah. Um, but he didn't use a first name because when you are the head of a clan, his first name is The. Because he's the chief. So he's The Owalia. His wife, though, she had the best name ever. Can you guess what her name was? Hello, Walia. Okay, that would have been really good, but no, her name is Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> but probably her name was Margaret, like Dudar's name was Owen. Her name was probably Merid. Not entirely sure. In the year 1530, Dudar, or rather the, and Merid had a daughter, their only legitimate child. She had a half-brother too, but he wasn't around much. Their daughter's name was Grania Nimalia, uh, or anglicized Grace O'Malley, which... Yeah, totally sounds like Grania no volume. What the fuck, England? They're she was, down. yeah, she was raised in a castle. Her family had five of them. These are not castles like you're immediately thinking of. These are stone towers. Um, they are like they're not the thing you look at and be like, yeah, a dragon lives there. You're like those people build things out of stone because they're constantly at war. Oh, they're chilly. like. Yeah, well, and they're also like two to three stories and like one room per floor. They're not, they're smaller than the average suburban house in America, these castles. So clearly these, when I'm saying that she grew up in a privileged life, I'm in a 16th century West Coast of Ireland. Relative, yeah. yeah. But she did, she grew up privileged. She learned Latin. She learned how to read and write. And actually for how barbarous Ireland was, a higher percentage of Irish people knew Latin than English people. They use it at church, obviously, but also they use it for trade with foreigners, including the English, because a lot of people didn't learn English. You'd learn Latin. Why would you learn that other country's That's language? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course, the Irish spoke Latin with an accent that bougie British people like to complain about all of the time, uh, because it was actually kind of a living language in some ways for Ireland, in a way that it wasn't for a lot of places. Grania learned seafaring young, even though girls weren't supposed to. This part is like more legend than history, but the end result of it, her, her learning seafaring, is absolutely true. So there's no particular reason to doubt this story. Her legend name, like in the same way that like Robin Hood's name wasn't Robin Hood to his friends, right? But her legend name is Grania Mull or Grania the Bald. Because when she was little, her dad was like, sorry, bud, you can't go sailing because you're a girl. And she was like, well, why the fuck not? 
And he was like, because your hair will get caught in the ropes. And so she shaved her head, <laughs> which rules. And she pushed. Her dad started taking her out sailing and, you know, being beset by other ships and besetting other ships. So she grows up learning to sail and fight and cuss and gamble and all this shit before she turns like 15. <laughs> if she'd been a generation younger, she would have lived a really different life. For hundreds of years, England was like, oh yeah, we totally own Ireland, but they didn't do anything about it because why would you? The Irish people are scary. So they just had the pale. But Henry VIII, he's, uh, he's not my favorite person who's ever lived. I don't know if you knew this. Um, he was like, I wonder if we can go over there and rob everyone and steal all the things from the monasteries and stuff, which is the part that people don't talk about a lot with the like anti-Catholic thing from the, the Anglican church did. Like there's lots of reasons to be mad at the Catholic church when you're England. But um, a lot of it was like, they got so much stuff, we could totally rob them, which to be fair is also what Grania and everyone else is doing too. But It was kind of like the most common um, pastime, I think, of the rich then and now. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's how you get rich. So more accurately, he didn't just go over there to rob everyone. The guy in charge of the pale rebelled, and Henry was like, nah, fuck you, and killed the shit out of him, even though the dude surrendered. Um, and that's going to set up a lot about what happens in Ireland for a while. You rebel. They're like, if you surrender, we'll play nice. And you're like, okay. And then they murder you anyway. Henry VIII was like, fuck it, I'm taking Ireland. This was 1541. Grania's 11. And the basic idea was to replace clan fealty with crown feudalism. More importantly, people weren't allowed to act Irish anymore. No more speaking Irish. There's a new law. You have to raise your kids speaking English. There's also lots of fashion advice from Henry VIII. And when Henry VIII gives you fashion advice, it means we're going to murder you if you don't do the following. I'm quoting from Judith Cook's book, The Pirate Queen, which is the uh, main biography. A lot of the stuff about Grania comes from, that I was able to find about Grania comes from. And in this book, or in this section, she's quoting and paraphrasing the law of 1541 from Henry VIII. No person or persons shall be shorn or shaven about the ears or use the wearing of hair on their heads like unto long locks called glibes or have or use any hair growing on, upon their upper lips called or named a cromiel, or use or wear any shirt, smock, kerchief, or linen cap colored or dyed with saffron, nor yet use or wear in any of their shirts or smocks above seven yards of cloth to be measured according to the king's standard. No woman must wear or use any, any kirtle or coat, tucked up or embroidered or garnished with silk, not couched nor laid with ornaments in the Irish fashion. No person or persons were to use or wear any mantles, coats, or hoods made after the Irish fashion. I think it's so funny. We, we spend so much time, you know, dissing on fashion and dismissing fashion. But as soon as anyone colonizes your country, like the first thing they do is like, we're going to ban your language ban your religion, and make you stop dressing like fucking foreigners. Yeah, totally. It's not a, it's not a side part of colonization, you know? Yeah. And there's so much in even these, like, specifics. Like, uh, to the last part, no use any mantle, coats, or hoods made after the Irish fashion. Like, I'm not entirely certain. Um, I know some of it was, like, conical hoods and stuff like that. But the Irish cloak at the time was... Not, it was a blanket. It was a big, huge chunk of wool that you fold up a certain way and pin over yourself. 
And it is a thing that you can do when you are poor. And it is cold there, as we've discussed in, in, in Hibernia. So telling people that they can't have that fucking sucks. And then to go into more of it, saffron dyes things yellow. So the band Irish fashion color was yellow, not green, which I just think is, I mean, I, I, I wasn't expecting everyone to wear green back then, but it's just, you know. The leprechauns didn't come until the 18th century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, second, cromiel means mustache. The English really hated mustaches. They didn't have the word mustache yet. That comes about 500, sorry, 50 years later, they get the word mustache in English. There just wasn't a word in English for the hair on your upper lip. They like, (laughs) they referred to it as like, I don't know, the hair on your upper lip, mouth beard. Did they have a word for like beard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they referred to it as like the beard of the upper lip sometimes. Um, And they're like, I don't know. This is why they have to invade everywhere. They don't know anything. They got to go find it somewhere else. Goofy. (laughs) You know, they're like, we need a word for this. Let's go fuck some people up. Okay. And then the haircuts. A glibe is a a haircut. It's a really fucking cool haircut. It's short in the back and long in the front with a fringe that covers your eyes. And like, like long in the front is like kind of like two like bangs that just sort of cover your eyes. It's kind of like a Chelsea. And there's some illustrations at the time of uh, Irish peasant soldiers who have glibes. And then, of course, there's some sources that or rather there's some unsourced claims that the glibe was like matted in the front. And there, I believe there were a lot of different like peasant cultures that would have matted hair, not in like careful separated out locks, but just one big matted fringe. But I don't know. The illustration that I found it does not look matted to me. And then the thing Do about... Do you ever get into an argument mm-hmm. with those? Uh, you're talking mm-hmm. about the, the Blue Lives Matter yeah, Irish. Okay. Have you ever run into the, I can have dreadlocks because my great, 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 great Irish grandson. Yeah, ancestor had dreadlocks. Yeah, that's where these unsourced things come from. And there's no evidence that if they had matted hair, it was locked. You know, there's that like Polish plate, like monodread thing that Mm -hmm. some peasants had in Europe. But yeah. Uh, The other haircut also ruled. And it was just a crust punk haircut. It was a fucking power mullet. It was... The thing about having hair shaven around the ears was probably related to the coulon, which is an Irish haircut that where you, most of the front is shaved and the back has grown really long. I'll try that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm like, I don't know. I, I, would, I would go for that. And I think this is extra cool because your two cool haircuts that you can now have to break the law, you have to pick between long in the front, short in the back, or short in the front, long in the back. The British really believed in equality of hair length and nothing else. Totally. (laughs) And this culture war shit had been going on for centuries in Ireland in order to prevent Normans from becoming cool as fuck Irish people. Because, like, a lot of people wanted to Gaelicize. Why wouldn't you? Is where you fucking live. Dublin passed a bunch of laws preventing Normans from adopting Irish fashion. Part of the reason for that was because if you kill an Englishman or a Norman... That's a capital offense. That's a big deal, right? You shouldn't go around killing people. By people, I mean English people. But if you kill an Irishman or an Irish person, you have to pay a fine. And the problem was, now all these English people look like Irish people. So you think it's totally fine to kill them. 
<laughs> but then you're in big trouble. And that's just not fair. They just need to make the Irish start wearing targets on their stomachs, you know, so it was yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I just think there's like some Starbelly Sneetches shit going on in this where it's like, because like, it, it, from a modern context, this is like white on white racism or whatever, right? It's not mm. racism, but it's an ethnic hatred. But it's an ethnic hatred between people who are like physiologically not particularly distinct. Yeah. So you need other shit. You need markers, right? Yeah. Right. It's, like, it's before like whiteness was consolidated in a certain sort of way. Right. But they still thought of each other as not fully human, you know? Right. And there's a bunch of stuff that like later the in mid- medieval English are going through and they literally refer to like women and children as prey as they're like going off to go put down rebellions and shit. Um, like just literally using the same languages that they use for animals. And, oh, yeah, vermin all the time they yeah. refer to the Irish as. All of that yeah. sort of dehumanizing language of genocide and colonization. Yep. And there's also political shit happening. The king wanted everyone to drop the O from their clan names or the Mac from their clan names. O means male descendant of. Mac means son of. Girls would be ne instead of O. Uh, but the clan names would use the masculine. And more importantly, he started pushing what was called surrender and regrant, which is he wanted all the clans to surrender to him. In exchange, he would give them their own land back with a proper English title and bring them into English feudalism. They'd have to stop practicing tanistry. Uh, No more the men own the land in common and vote for who runs it, just regular feudalism. And... They wanted everyone to stop practicing Irish ways of living, which was largely pastoralist rather than agricultural at this point. People weren't sitting around growing potatoes, not yet. That actually had to do with a lot with the fact that all their land got dispossessed. A lot of people were like kind of just hanging out with their livestock. And I think some of the poor people were like literally just wandering around with their livestock. Your family would have like a cow and then you would just drink the milk from that cow. And that's how you stay alive. And there's this whole part in these laws that are like, plus you have to build houses. And again, someone who isn't me knows slightly more about what that means, and I don't want to conjecture too hard. English hate caves. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of the demands that the that they made. And I don't know. So the English were like, grow some food, build some houses, you useless Irish degenerates. And that's where we're going to leave it today. When we come back... On Wednesday, we're going to talk about pirates and rebels and spies. But I want to, I want to talk about one thing unrelated to any of this really quickly because of something that happened uh, yesterday in the real world. I guess all this happened in the real world too, but hundreds of years ago. Yesterday as we record this, last Wednesday for, for those of you listening when this drops and old news for everyone else who's listening in the far future. As I'm sure a lot of you are aware, there's been active and lively protests happening in Atlanta right now, trying to stop the police from building a training facility through destroying a forest. And there are protests against all of this, and they tie together environmentalism, environmental racism, and police violence. And living up to the concept of police violence, the police killed a protester yesterday, which is last Wednesday as this release is released. And you there in the future, you already know more about what happened than we do as we're saying this. But the police are already putting out their narrative about what happened, and any cursory look at recent or ancient history tells us there's literally no reason to trust anything that the police have said after they've killed somebody. So whatever happened that morning, I think it's important to remember this person as a, as a whole person who had a whole life 
So I just want to say that the person they killed was named uh, Tortuguita or Tort. And he was a 26-year-old non-binary indigenous anarchist. From folks who knew them, I didn't have the pleasure. They split their time between Atlanta, where they worked to defend the forest and organize mutual aid programs, and Florida, where they helped build housing for low-income communities that had been hit hard by recent hurricanes. They worked as a medic with the Atlanta Resistance Medics. They were vegan, they loved music, and they took inspiration from the Zapatistas. And so whatever happened, they were a, a person, they were a whole person, and they had their own life and their own interests and their own loves. And they were killed by the police while working to stop a facility the police will use to train more, how to do more violence to more people. That's my aside. <laughs> I think it fits pretty closely into any story about the Irish resisting British colonization. That feels like a, of a piece, you know? Yeah. It's an aside and a continuation, all unfortunately at the same time. No, that's that's true. That's one of the reasons why I think it's why I read about Irish colonization as the first modern Western colonization project. Um, and of course, many of the people who suffered from it are now part of that same empire. But let's talk about you, Hugh Ryan, here at the end. Me? Yeah. Who are you? What if people like stuff that you might like and want to read about it? Books. Sorry, what books what have, yeah, no, oh. what books have you written? <laughs> You're right. I thought you said like. What do you like and what might people like to read about it? And I was like, what do I like? I don't know <laughs> I write mostly about queer history. Mostly like New York City and American queer history. To Mostly. Not entirely. Uh, but I think that really the subject that I'm always kind of interested in is not this sort of like... I don't know, petting zoo of history where it's like, look, a lesbian in the fourth century. Look, you know, this kind of like um, universal idea of sex and sexuality as mm -hmm. being something that we can apply from now into the past. It's a perfectly fine mode. It's just not the mode I work in. I'm really interested in the ways in which our ideas about what it means to be a certain kind of sexuality or that sexuality even is a thing separate from gender that we can even talk about. How do those ideas develop, develop and how do they spread and how can we watch that happen through the history that is in our country or our city? Because I really focus on New York City. So my work looks at the queer history of Brooklyn. My first book was When Brooklyn Was Queer or it looks at a prison in 20th century Greenwich Village, my new book, The Women's House of Detention, and really sort of asks how does sexuality and gender change over the course of those times through these institutions, through urban studies, through the way people interact in space, in cities, to produce even the way we think about sexuality at all? Yeah. Honestly, you talking about that thing about not just going back in the past and uh, being like, and this is a trans person in all the ways we understand it now, and they just happen to live in eight. 17th century North America or whatever. The way that you challenge that is like one of the reasons I reached out to you. And um, so I just say that anyone who uh, wants to should should read Hughes stuff. I don't know if you like history, people who are listening to this podcast. But <laughs> if you like cool things, though, cool yeah. things, you should read my stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's true. We all the time look at the past like they're like stupid versions of ourselves. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, they're exactly like us. They just didn't have this word yet because they were morons. Yeah, except mustache. And I'm like, I the think British they could have come up with... <laughs> 
Anyway, sorry. I'm refer to like old British people as mustaches from now on. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I didn't mean to derail you though. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's, it's, you know, we just think, oh God, they just didn't have this word. But obviously all of our concepts are exactly the same. Nothing has ever changed. And particularly with sexuality and gender identity and queerness, because I think in, in an American context, we'll talk specifically, though I think this is mm-hmm. applicable, you know, throughout the kind of Western world. But we have this period in the mid 20th century where like the culture was absolutely cracked down on and hidden and repressed and suppressed and destroyed. And I think because of that, many people who grew up and were adults in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when this kind of first Mm -hmm. period of modern queer history is happening, it was instinctive to kind of say, well, we were destroyed and hidden in these periods. So I can look back further and and I'm going to find us everywhere because that's what had just happened, right? Homophobia teaches us that queer people were hidden and suppressed. And so then we take what we learned from homophobia and transphobia from the people who hated us and we apply it to history and we say, well, they must be exactly like us and they were hidden all the time. They were suppressed. They were suppressed so badly they didn't even have a word for it, right? And I think that's one of those insidious ways Uh, in which uh homophobia has taught us to think something that is not true at all and taught us to think, in fact, something that is not progressive is progressive, right? That we can look back and always see ourselves, that sexuality is unchanging and in fact stands outside of time, which means outside of culture, which means it is natural. And I will go to my grave denaturalizing basically everything humans do, particularly (laughs) sex, sexuality, and gender. There's not a lot of naturalness or everything we do is natural. It's one or the other. There's no in between. But our take on history when it comes to sexuality is often just an attempt to say like, gay people have always existed exactly as they have existed. And the borders between what it means to be gay and trans are the exact same thing. And they've always existed when those things have barely existed over the course of my lifetime in certain places in the U.S. No, that I mean, one of the things that I, I realize by reading so much history and also just being obsessed with medieval shit even though it's funny because I feel like most of these episodes are less medieval and more uh, 18th, 19th century. I guess because of when most of the political movements that are currently reflected in the world were doing their thing. But it's like sometimes I look back at what seem to be older understandings of sexuality and gender and see myself more easily represented. You know, and so it's like, and maybe it's because it's like, well, I want to be a trans woman who has a sword. And so like, I mean, I am a trans woman who has a sword, but it's like a slightly different thing, you know? Um, Only one sword? I expected. Oh more. no, I have more. There's, there's here, right <laughs> here. Um, here's a sp- boar spear. Wow! Uh, it was a prop for a recording I did the other day. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> but no, no, and and I find it more uh, liberating to realize that everything is constantly in flux. And so instead of saying like, there's this like arrogance we have where we're being like, oh well. This is, these are the definitions of transness, and this is the scientific truth we have uncovered, you know, as compared to being like, this is what we are currently working with that is really useful, and I'm not trying to say we should get rid of it, but we should look at people in their own context. It's why I'm trying to talk about why this lady grew up a pirate. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we got to understand them in their period and yeah. what's around them and what makes sense. And what I think is really liberating about that for me, mm-hmm. like the, the true reason I actually do all this queer history, I came to it like everybody else. I didn't know any queer people growing up. I had never met an out gay person when I came out in the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. And I was desperate for a reflection of myself. Right. Yeah. But that reflection is is something of a lie. Right. It's 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 we're looking at a piece of glass. Right. It's not a mirror. You don't see yourself. 
you are enabled to see something that's really different from you and really far away. And sometimes your reflection actually gets in the way of seeing what's really out there, right? The reflection brings us to the glass, but it actually yeah. is a barrier to understanding what's on the other side. But once we do, once we learn to see into the past and to really say like, look, these people are working with the same constituent parts, yeah. you know, the same bodies and desires, and they were constructing things really differently. That enables me to imagine a future where everything is totally different again. I can't yeah. see the future, but because I can see the past, I know it's going to be different. There is no way. There is nothing in history that is constant except change. Yeah. And so being a historian for me is actually mostly about the future. Yeah. No, that... I really like that. And honestly, one of the reasons I talk about why I do this show is that like, I mean, one, I like stories and I like neat stories. But one of the reasons I like stories is so that we can understand like archetypical figures and understand who we can be and stuff like that. But also even just like understanding the context, it's like I, I clearly play a lot of baseball. I'm really good at sports. But I imagine that if I'm trying to hit a ball that's been thrown, knowing I don't need to just know where the ball is. I need to know like the pitch. I need to know mm -hmm. the, the trajectory it's on. Yeah. And so learning history is often about learning the trajectory of these things, these, these powers that are in motion right now so that we can better anticipate how to counter them or engage with them or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think we all get taught history like a series of like static moments, or at least I did mm -hmm. when I was a kid. You know, the education system totally changed. But uh, it was like, names and dates and kings and presidents that you had to memorize the most boring that's like the raw material of history it's what happens in between those yeah, totally. where we find actual history it's like if math were just like learning the numbers one through ten and we called it counting right it's what you do with those numbers that is math yeah what totally. we do with this information is history but we teach kind of the wrong end of it i think at the earlier age you're you're encouraged not to speculate not to imagine not to build a world out of the pieces but to memorize them as like dead facts yeah and come back on wednesday for more dead no wait no not dead facts lots of speculation i'm sure anyone who listens to this knows <laughs> i am not afraid of speculation that's a live fact yeah it's in motion yeah and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you all on Wednesday. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. 
It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.